You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. The last couple of weeks have been an incredible climax to what has been, by any measurement, an incredible year. The last episode of PGAP was released a day before vote counting in the USA, where I discussed politics with Kelvin Thompson. Since then, I found myself relieved that Biden won the presidency, despite the tight contests and witnessing the division of country across political lines. I received a flood of emails from environmental organisations also relieved by a Biden victory with email headings such as, what this means for climate change. The reality is probably not a huge seismic difference long term. The Democrats are also pursuing the experiment of infinite GDP growth on a finite planet at the expense of everything else. And on that ideology alone, they are furiously united with the Republicans. Closer to home, the Australian borders have been easing and in about two weeks from now, I will be hitting the road to leave Melbourne, the ever-expanding concrete metropolis that I called home for the past eight years. There will be much in Melbourne I will miss. However, when the third wave comes, which is a real possibility, just our satellite, I would rather be next to trees or the ocean any open horizontal space for that matter, anything that isn't bitumen, road, or another poorly designed concrete tower. I will miss the house in Preston that I've lived in for the past four years, or rather shared with a variety of other people. It has been great experimenting with living in an intentional community, activist hub, closed loop permaculture dream in a rented quarter-acre block in Melbourne's inner north. Often, the results have been wonderful. Before lockdown, we hosted events, activist gatherings, community libraries, community bulk food pantries, you name it. During lockdown, we turned the front into a food-growing oasis which expanded on the food oasis we already had out the back. Our housemate Suze created an amazing community free stop exchange outside the front gate and drew inspirational quotes of chalk on the street pavement, which given the general feedback was a lifeline for the general neighbourhood. The house appeared on a TV series Housemates a couple of years ago and the chalk art made it into the age paper. While these accolades were great, this degree of intensity with shared living wasn't always sunshine and jelly babies. Sometimes the term living theatre was more of an apt description. But we have learned a lot about the importance of behavioural change as an integral form of activism. This is why eco-psychology and its offshoots such as holistic activism have grown in importance. Speaking personally, it is the internal processing in the wide open road with a different set of joys and hardships that now beckons. In many ways, my house has been a project of bringing to life the wider retro suburbia project that has been popularised in many years by permaculture co-founder David Holmgren. Retro Suburbia is now the name of a really impressive and very large book which is full of vivid life, colour, pictures and makes a great coffee table book so long as your coffee table is large enough. But of course it is so much more than a coffee table book. So what is Retro Suburbia? Well, I suppose I could paraphrase it badly for you or we could hear it straight from the co-founder of Permaculture himself. 
Given that David Holmgren is a household name, especially in the permaculture community, I'm very honoured that he has agreed to be interviewed for this podcast. David Holmgren co-founded the permaculture movement in the 1970s together with Bill Mollison and has written many books on the subject and continues to write and speak about permaculture as well as economies based on alternatives to growth. This includes a solution to the dichotomy of high-rise versus suburban sprawl that is currently so dominant in town planning thought. Now, normally I provide a short summary at the end of the interviews. For this episode, I thought that I'd tussle up tradition slightly by bringing in a sustainable town planning expert to summarise some of the key points brought up in the interview. Mark Allen is a founder of Town Planning Rebellion, a group that is keen to shake up and democratise the town planning system. I've mentioned the good work of TPR on several occasions on PGAP and thought this was the perfect opportunity to hear from Mark himself. Following the interview, I will also play Garoa Garden from the incredible permaculture-themed band Formidable Vegetable, formerly known as Formidable Vegetable Sound System. I've been fortunate to see this wonderful band many times over the years. Not only are their morals and community spirit on the right side of history, they are also an absolute hoot as a live act and have some cracking melodies to boot. One of the members of Formidable Vegetable even once taught me how to play the gum leaf. I didn't even know by blowing into it the right way it could sound a bit like a spit flugel. My mind expanded that evening almost as much as my mind expanded when talking to David Holmgren and Mark Allen. Now, how's that for a segue? Now, David, my first question for you. So you're seen, for better or for worse, as a hero <laughs> in our movement. So are you okay if I titter and giggle nervously throughout the interview uncontrollably? Yeah, that's okay. I, I no longer get embarrassed about uh, that sort of celebrity stuff. When I was young, <laughs> it uh, troubled me a lot in the early days of enthusiasm about permaculture in the in the 1970s. But um I've learned to deal with it since then. You're used to it, in other words. So, um, retro suburbia is pretty much a household name where I'm living in Melbourne's inner north in Preston. Uh, really? However, <laughs> it is, it is. I feel I can say retro suburbia, or at least in the alternative contingent and people... I, I thought uh, you were making you know, a mistake and saying permaculture is almost a household word. <laughs> the retro suburbia idea has is, is really taken off to a degree in, in uh, parts of Melbourne and, uh, as you say, the inner... In the north. I guess <laughs> outside of Melbourne's in the north, a lot of people may not necessarily equate permaculture with suburban Australia, but recently you've given a particular focus of permaculture in the suburbs with your latest book, Retro Suburbia. Um, I was almost in Retro Suburbia because I was involved in one of the case study houses in Preston, um, but I, I was unable to make it that day and I'll forever kick myself because it's a hugely um, colourful uh, book and it's, um, <laughs> the, the fact that you're able to create that is amazing. But could you summarise what 
retro suburbia is about and why this changes how we should approach town planning? Yeah, well, I suppose first I'd say that although people don't necessarily associate permaculture with the suburbs, they often more associate it with uh, rural self-reliance and the back to the land movement and, you know, regions in Australia like uh, the Rainbow Region, northern New South Wales, whatever. In fact, the early phases of the development of permaculture movement, of which Melbourne was really the core of its growth, even though the ideas emerged in Tasmania, uh, in with the publication of Permaculture One in 1978, there was a huge interest across suburban Australia. Um, so the, there's an article on the Retro Suburbia website called A Short, Short Personal and Global History of Retrofitting the Suburbs, which is my little sort of potted pathway that led me back to, over the last decade or so, focusing a lot more on the the way permaculture activism applies in the, the city. And Retro Suburbia was really written for the punters in the suburbs who are seriously engaged in and or considering their options for really kick-starting their household economy to provide greater self and collective reliance, uh, so providing more of one's needs through what you do uh, without being paid for it, um, that a lot of people would say, oh, that's leisure or hobbies or, you know, no, this is actually re- the real economy, <laughs> the household economy, and also to increase resilience in challenging times. So it focuses in three fields of action, the the built environment, you know, how to retrofit and um, sort of add water tanks or grey water systems or um, insulation, all of those things that we'd associate with the word retrofitting, um, that part of retro in retro suburbia very much relates to this concept of retrofitting to make fit for new purpose, um, which sort of, again, was a catchphrase in the 1970s oil crises, more so in the United States and Europe than here, of how we fix up houses as energy became much more expensive and this adapt what we've already got uh, rather than the let's go and build something new, let's go and build the new eco-village or the the new state-of-the-art, you know, passive solar house or uh, whatever version of that was. There was this, if you like, more humdrum basic uh, level of how do we retrofit what we've got and that we can apply that same paradigm to the biological field, which is mostly gardening and food production, uh, animal husbandry, perhaps the core of what people would think of as being permaculture, uh, even though permaculture has always been, you know, um, applied in the built environment as well as the biological. And the third field, which is in some ways the biggest and the where the greatest change is possible is the behavioural. And that sort of covers everything from our uh, sort of personal habits to organisational structure of how we share house or own things or, uh, you know, relate to ownership right through to all the challenging questions of uh, uh, 
security in difficult times, ageing, death and disability. Uh, so it's uh, in some ways Retro Suburbia is three books from a conventional publisher's point of view. Let's say that's three books. We decided to put it all together in one uh, big manual. But the implications of retro suburbia for urban planning are really huge. So the book wasn't written for activists and policymakers, even though the uptake of these ideas has got huge implications for land use planning, including that sort of really half-century-long debate about high-rise versus suburban sprawl. Um, because widespread uptake of the retro suburbia ideas would mean that both are unnecessary. Is it unnecessary? Because I, I guess when I try to explain retro suburbia to people, it's like, um, okay, instead of knocking down what we have to create something new that can fit a lot more people in, you know, discreetly, that we leave what we have and find a way to fit more people within the, exi- the existing space. Yeah, I mean, of course, if you look at that from a policy point of view and say, oh, you know, how do you force more people into, you know, uh, this? <laughs> but you could look at it the other way and say, if this is actually better for people to do that and people are trying to do that, why don't we, in a policy sense, assist that and explain how that is best for the environment, uh, best for community, and hey presto, it's best for you financially too. Now, whether that's sharing uh, um, house with other people, or whether it's household uh, extended family consolidation, there's a lot of different ways in which this could happen. Now, if we look back, well, say the terrace house that I lived in in the early 80s in North Carlton, um, and there were four of us there, uh, most of those terrace houses had one person or two persons, and then there's that other issue is that they were almost never there. <laughs> so we'll get to that in, in a moment. But just that notionally how many people are living. Well, if you go back to the 1930s, um, there was about 12 people in those uh, houses, each of those houses. So to say, oh, you should fit more in um, would be a bit like uh, going to Soweto and there's 15 people in the taxi and saying, oh, you need to fit 30 people in the taxi. Whereas when we look at our cars driving along uh, the highway, you know, mostly there's one person. So straight away there's this underused capacity and in Australia we have this Uh, extreme of what is a globally unprecedented situation in the long affluent countries. We have this enormous amount of housing stock with actually very few people living in it. And the reason we can do that is that there's a belief that housing is just um, a perpetual money-making machine where it goes up in value. So you don't have to use it the use value is completely secondary to its investment value. And that's also been reinforced by the family home being sort of protected from taxation and, you know, lots and lots of other aspects. So we've got fewer and fewer people 
living in what are essentially larger and larger spaces. But then we've got another dynamic that's overlaying that is that people spend very, very little time at home until the pandemic. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason for that is they're out at work, at play, um, at school, um, crowding the city uh, using other facilities, often sort of not much different in their function. You know, they've got toilets and, and they've got kitchens, and, you know. Uh, and, and so, yeah, yeah, they're going and eating at the restaurant while I've got a kitchen at home that could cater for 20 people quite comfortably. Now, you could say, oh, well, that's people's free choice that they've chosen to do that, and that is a sign of affluence uh, powered by uh, fossil fuel. But there's another aspect that a lot of the demand for constant growth of GDP is by increasing what economists call the participation rate. How do you get everyone actually out at work now, supposedly that's good for the country and everything, whereas retro suburbia is about increasing the participation rate in the non-monetary economy. And the non-monetary economy, of course, is not confined to a private home. It occurs in the community, but the core of it, the foundation of it, is what people do for themselves at home. And if there's surplus capacity there and people start doing more at home, and sharing that space with more people, then the whole notion of a crowded city, infrastructure demand, all of these things start to become less of a problem. Now, I know someone who won't like you very much from what you've said, and that's Dan Andrews, who's, uh, I think, the other week bragged that his government has poured more concrete into Melbourne than any other government <laughs> in history and can't wait to do it again when the pandemic's over. And uh, this this is really good for the economy. You know, it doesn't look into the fact that it concretes one of the most uh, environmentally unfriendly substances you can ever have. And plus the high rises, they look really terrible, don't they? And they crack within um, two seconds of being built. And um, I think average shelf life of about 30 years. And it's incredible. Well, we certainly have an extreme uh, globally and Australia is close to the top of it in terms of uh, uh, casino economy in real estate where we have building happening uh, very fast, supposedly driven by real need. And, of course, the real need driver in the start of that is, of course, immigration, which you know has been bipartisan support because it increases <laughs> GDP, you know, it's nothing to do with um, being generous to uh, uh, refugees. In fact, uh, we, we tend to sort of try and cream uh, people with high levels of skill and lots of money to get them to, to come here and accelerate our economic growth. So if policymakers think about retro suburbia as a solution at all, they would probably immediately conclude that without um, the bubble real estate market predicated on never-ending asset value increases, the building industry would be reduced to a sort of a labour and skill-intensive retrofitting industry dominated by small business. Uh, that wouldn't be very good for the corporations. It wouldn't be very good for the tax base 
um, of governments, it would actually create a surprising amount of employment relative to the new capital intensive, uh, you know, smash everything down, throw up bigger and better things because retrofitting is fiddly, you know, it, 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 and uh, sort of quite labour intensive. And of course, our economy is designed to reduce the labour to do almost everything and including de-skilling things. But GDP would almost certainly contract radically as a result of uh, retro suburbia, uh, not just because uh, of not needing so much in the building side, but because if people start um, even just taking their lunch when they go to work um, that they've made at home instead of buying lunch, well, that actually reduces GDP. And, of course, when people went the other way and started um, to buy lunch at a restaurant, that increased GDP. No more lunches were created. It's just the activity became monetarised. And once it is monetarised, then governments and corporations can get a slice of it. When it's in the household and community non-monetary economy, it's basically inaccessible to those larger sectors. And yet we've relied throughout history until recently on the household and community non-monetary economy being a solid base, a fallback. Um, It's sort of like part of the social resilience system and that the monetary economy is sort of like used to be the icing on the cake. Um, But it is inherently unstable. It's just the nature of capitalism and the nature of markets. Um, But, you know, in 100 years ago during the last pandemic um, and there was a general strike in Australia and the whole country sort of shut down in terms of that, but people just went back to their their homes and they had chooks and gardens and often extended family living together. They had a whole support base that was there. They didn't have JobKeeper, <laughs> you know, but they had their sort of informal uh, social support systems. And we've stripped away all of those capacities. And the reason it's been done is to basically accelerate uh, GDP. So rather than being anti-growth, I can claim that we, if we just move more of that activity back into the household and community non-monetary economies, um, because it's better for the environment, better for um, uh, community and better for people's actual, actually they're going to be better off um, those doing it, then uh, we can do, we can call that growth since the movement the other way got called uh, growth. So I'm basically suggesting that perhaps 50% of the growth of GDP in my life um, has been completely fake, not in the sense of GDP, including legal litigation and car accidents and things that are not really goods and services, they're bads and disservices. But it's just like whether the lunch is in the monetary economy or or not, um, so that half of that growth has come from monetarising things that were already happening. 
So we can move it back and call it growth since they got to call it growth uh, when it wasn't <laughs> in the first place. So that's a, a sort of, in a way, a, a, another take on, uh, you know, the whole nexus between um, sort of, uh, you know, growth and and uh, degrowth. Of course, there's another argument that is saying that environmental efficiencies will, uh, in the household and community non-monetary economies, mean that a lot of these activities, which historically always were done outside the monetary economy, will use less energy, less resources, and be more efficient, and therefore environmental load and impacts will be lower. Now, of course, the evidence base for that, there's not a huge amount of research on that, but um, it's certainly something that aligns with uh, common sense and the evidence of history that until recently, even in places with a fairly advanced monetary economy, things like basic food preparation, uh, basic house maintenance, basic uh, self-health care and uh, child care and a degree of food growing, all of these activities were maintained um, at that household and community level because it was just much more efficient, much more economic than, say, let's grow all the vegetables in large monocultural fields at massive distances from cities and send them right across the continent. I mean, that has only been possible because of, uh, of cheap fossil fuel. You know, no previous society would ever have designed uh, itself to do that because it was inefficient, you know, to grow perishable food a long distance from where the people who were going to eat it. And the closest place to do that is right in the household economy. For many people, suburban block spaces are getting larger with fewer people in them. Um, within, I suppose, Melbourne's inner to mid area, I've observed another phenomena, which is a, almost a semi-nomadicism of the vagaries of renting and displacement. Yep. So people who don't have the income in order to uh, live in their own home find themselves uh, being pushed further and further out of lower and lower quality homes with more and more renting insecurity. So although there can be a lot of people living in a space and indeed um, growing and working with gardens. Um, I mean, I've lived in four places in Melbourne since I moved here eight years ago. The first yeah. house, um, we established a fantastic garden and it was knocked down for units. So yeah. it, it can be a bit dispiriting to <laughs> um, start growing a gardening. So I yeah, guess I'm just, I mean, retro suburbia, is fantastic, but there needs to be systemic change so people can actually rent without being constantly displaced. Is, is that, would that yeah, be a well, fair? Certainly the, the property bubble and the dysfunctions that uh, lead to this, you know, sort of unnecessary um, displacement of people and where property is valued by owners uh, for that um, uh, speculative rise rather than 
uh, rental. So rental is almost seen by owners as a sort of annoying problem that you have to deal with. Uh, what retro suburbia inevitably involves is uh, relationships rebuilding between people who own and people who occupy and redeveloping direct exchange relationships and more enduring ones, even in the context of dysfunctional policies that don't address uh, everything ranging out to the whole, um, uh, you know, inequities in society and the fact that we're living on stolen land, <laughs> you know, like this sort of um, structural problems within uh, structural problems. But the, the workarounds in that uh, relationships, one of the things that we're finding with uh, people who are managing to do more in a rental situation is making a connection to the people who do own, who recognise that value in uh, not just good tenants in, in a sort of a conventional sense of the word, but people who actually want to uh, improve and extend what, uh, what they want, uh, what they have there. Of course, while property values keep going up, there's the constant message that this is a loser's game as a renter, that you're just, you know, adding value to um, to an owner's property. And I can remember people actually saying that to me in the early days of my permaculture experimentation. And I used to say, well, you know, what I gain from the experience of using other people's property is is more valuable than the asset I leave behind. And I take that that with me. So there's firstly that um, breaking out of that sort of thing about I've got to own something before I can do something substantial with it, but there's also building those partnerships and relationships of interdependence uh, with owners, which usually means bypassing the middlemen, the real estate agents, who are mostly there to keep parties away from each other and tell each of them that the other is a threat. <laughs> uh, you know, this, uh, and that's a, one of the classic roles of middlemen in economies, uh, of course. And when economies need to contract, there's a process called disintermediation where you cut out the middlemen. You know, when you grow your own food um, at home, you cut, you disintermediate this massive chain of um economic activity. But historically, the evidence suggests that um, uh, the middlemen, uh, when things need to contract, actually refuse to budge and bleed um, both the pr producer and the consumer, those at either end of the economic chain who need to get together. Uh, so that it's quite natural that um, these, you know, we're dealing with these dysfunctions. But I think some of the mechanisms for uh, sharing and networks for connecting between owners and, and renters are part of the uh, solution uh, to that problem. Uh, obviously, there's other aspects of the use of public land and community projects and all those sorts of things that are, you know, part of the puzzle uh, as well. Um, but the 
other aspect, of course, is if um, the long-awaited collapse of the property bubble uh, does eventually happen when they stop the printing presses of money that are sort of keeping it going, uh, then suddenly um, owners are not in such a good position at all um, if their property is now worth a fraction of what they paid for it. And they will become dependent um, on uh, renters, not just for rent, but situations may emerge where um, renters can become part owners of the place that they've put effort into um, to, you know, stave off the uh, uh, the current owner um, becoming bankrupt. So these dynamics can shift uh, very rapidly in different um, uh, uh, economic scenarios. Yeah, interesting. And I've certainly observed uh, in that current house that I have, um, we managed to be rid of the middleman, the real estate agent, have a relationship um, with the next door neighbours who, who are the landlords and everything is a lot more stable as a result. Um, I remember we were on TV for a series called um, Housemates and so real estate agents didn't like that, but the landlords did. So a lot of it is that. Uh, relationships and actually knowing and humanising each other, um, which yes. does bring me to the next question. Um, and just to bring my own experience, in the current houses I'm living with, um, we very proudly go, oh, we're doing the retro suburbia thing. You know, 30% is, um, yes. of the quarter-acre block is, is, is grown. We have about um, um, n- numerous people living in the same area. Um, One of the challenges I have found in this house and indeed any house, and I'm not sure whether it's a particular issue of um, uh, left-leaning people in the the north or whether it's a broader issue, but it's the capacity to actually get along and like each other um, without your, um, you know, traumas getting in the way. So, um, yeah, it does require behaviour change in order to live with each other, and I wonder if there's like a permaculture into your garden is like how you uh, relate to people. You start where they are now, rather than trying to force them to change. Connecting the issues where you share common ground. Yeah. yeah so the issue of how we get along is is perhaps the the core issue uh, in retro suburbia and more generally with so many uh, uh, social and environmental uh, issues and the atomization of society into uh, separate um, individuals supported in the technosphere but sort of independent uh, of dependencies on other people with free-floating emotional and personal relationships that are not connected to that interdependence is, of course, a, a pattern which has evolved over many generations and become more extreme. I think there's a lot of learnings through the intentional communities movement and uh, uh, and also increasing now with the economic necessity for so many people to share uh, beyond what used to be the sort of um, uni student uh, uh, sharing households that so many people of my generation decided were the, um, you know, were something that was dysfunctional. But similarly in families uh, and, uh, you know, there's 
a huge number of relationships where people survive because they actually don't do much together, don't see each other. And the pandemic has sort of highlighted some of those vulnerabilities when people being forced back together. But it's also brought out a lot of people refocusing on what are those relationships and how fortunate they are to have uh, those personal and intimate relationships that are not um, uh, separated uh, by uh, space and um, pandemic protocols. So there's a huge learning process there, but the core issue that you highlighted, you've got to start from where people are, um, that you can't sort of project some idealised state. Uh, And a lot of this is to do with personal expectations. And one of the learnings from intentional communities is that people who have similar values and sometimes similar needs are more likely to to be disappointed uh, by their uh, partners in community because they have these elevated expectations that they will behave uh, just like I would want them to. Uh, And in fact, people don't. Whereas sometimes people who have different values and different needs, um, we have lesser expectations so we don't get so disappointed. But the core um, aspect of that that's really important is the assumption that people who have similar needs will cooperate. Actually, the natural relationship in that situation is competition, whereas the natural relationship with, with people who have different needs and different skills and abilities is to cooperate because they're complementary. And, you know, it's as simple as the... the um, the nursery rhyme, Jack's, Jack Sprat could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean. Between them, they licked the platter clean. You know, that sort of um, recognition that people with difference um, is actually an opportunity to cooperate. And sometimes if we're all the same age, we've all got the same requirements, then we get annoyed with each other, but we're actually structurally in a position of competing Uh, with each other rather than cooperating. So a lot of this is basic ecological understandings that emerge out of the study of natural systems and human systems, and we we can uh, apply that, you know, in the way also that we uh, develop households and uh, whether those are traditional family households or, or shared households. So the walk away from that is uh, next time we look for housemates, look for people who are the polar opposite of us. Great. That's what we've been doing wrong. Thank you, David. <laughs> I had a hunch. <laughs> um, yeah, whereas if you've got the person who's the like really into the garden and someone who's really into sort of uh, fixing the car and, uh, you know, doing something else, then it becomes sort of, you know, your domain and my domain. Yeah, I'll help but do what you say in that area and over in this area, you know, um, sort of I'm the boss <laughs> type of, you know, that, that, that's often, you know, a way and whether that's in, in traditional family relationships uh, or, or any sort of um, shared in, in, in endeavour, that's one of the 
the strategies that lead to success. Fantastic. So second last question, I'm going to, uh, I know you mentioned the P word and it wasn't permaculture's population. And this is an issue that um, this podcast does touch on. However, if we transition to a post-growth model of living that incorporates retro suburbia, um, is there a potential that we can add modestly to our population, perhaps through the humanitarian program, um, rather, you know, than economic forms of migration um could you discuss that a little bit more as a caveat i just wanted to ask um i believe in uh bill some of bill mollison's former books like local carrying capacity and population was discussed quite a bit and um i get a feeling that this may be less of the case now and i'm just wondering if people are wanting to do closed loop systems in a retro suburbia model is there a limit of carrying capacity based on the amount of um, carbs you can grow in a quarter acre block, you know? Um, so it's two questions, yeah. but, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah they're, they're quite um, uh, complex ones in, in a way, especially the issue of, of carrying capacity. And I have a very nuanced sort of view about that which relates to sort of deep understandings about uh, sustainability and energy descent, and the uh, the way in which the pulse of of uh, fossil fuels has actually, although it's degraded our environmental options into the future, it also acts as a continuing um, capacity through all sorts of things, including permaculture design, which is a, partly an outcome of the modern world to extend carrying capacity, even if there may be a tail off in that, in the way that infrastructure deteriorates over time and cannot necessarily be replaced, but can be used for longer periods. Uh, There's many different ways in which that exists in our agricultural capacities and uh, the opportunities for permaculture to make use of wastes that exist at the moment, like in cities of food waste, which is a possibility for for uh, feeding animals and, and feeding soil microbes. But really, in a less wasteful society, those wastes won't be there. So some of the abundances that we can see now, whether they're of wastes or whether they're of technological capacity, that over time those you know, decline, and so therefore carrying capacity um, actually needs to go down, uh, you know, does go down, and therefore population needs to go down. But, of course, that doesn't need to occur by some sort of um, sort of catastrophic die-off. Uh, it can happen. Populations can decline just, yeah, quite gradually of, of all sorts of natural processes. Whether Australia is overpopulated or underpopulated, you know, I sort of don't really like to address that question because I think the level of awareness about all of the issues involved are at such a low level that, you know, my perspectives on that would be misunderstood because in some ways I see that Australia is already well overpopulated. Um, with the current forms of consumption and economy. And in other ways, I think it's possible, uh, at least for some period of centuries, for Australia to support uh, more people and those people could be contributing to um, uh, 
regenerative agriculture and land management that in a way the land needs more labour on it. But of course it's how much we consume along the way, um, you know, how much are we contributing back into supporting the future resource base to support humanity and the diversity of life in general and how much are we sort of uh, depleting it. So all of those issues are, are very, very complex. But in terms of um, uh, modest migration policies in a sensible uh, Australia, uh, we have, if we restructure what we're doing and stop doing the really stupid things, then we definitely uh, could have um, those modest increases. And those population increases would be better focused in a sort of a, a sensible uh, re-ruralisation where rural areas where uh, labour and skill is needed to create regenerative agriculture, to manage our uh, incredibly extensive uh, wild forests that do, do exist in this country, which have, under a terra nullius view of, of just being left to burn and not do anything with in the hope that they'll turn back into some uh, Indigenous paradise. Uh, all of these things actually need people. Uh, now, similarly in the middle space in our regional towns um, and uh, smaller towns, there's underused infrastructure capacity that would benefit from having uh, some more people there. Whereas generally, I think uh, we should say our capital cities are already uh, too big. They're certainly too big to be sustainable in a low energy uh, future that um, where fossil fuels are completely out of the question and we are running on a renewable uh, energy base. You just wouldn't design cities that big. And we know that before fossil fuels, there were very few cities in the world that were over a million people. Uh, Rome at its peak was two million, massively unsustainable in extracting resources out of not just its hinterland but the whole uh, empire. So that capacity to concentrate population is as much a problem in, in countries like Australia as the total population, whereas in some other countries that are densely populated like Bangladesh or the Netherlands, you could say the ecological limits are very closely related to total population, uh, whereas here it's that concentration which is is so much of the problem yeah look we could talk for hours on this because as you said <laughs> it's a very nuanced issue but i am uh, aware that um due to our respective internet connections we're pro <laughs> it's probably pushing us and uh, um, we're talking on borrowed time here which i think is a good microcosm <laughs> <laughs> for the world generally i'll, I'll say a final question um that is do you think that promoting retrosuburbia should go hand in hand with working towards a degrowth or steady state model of society? Or is it about accepting that collapse is inevitable and that all our efforts should be solely focused on being best prepared for when or if that happens? So a nice pithy post-growth <laughs> question to round it up. Well, I've always 
of course, advocated uh, permaculture activism at the household level is actually a, a political act um, so that it's not just um, an acceptance of uh, that everything's going to fall apart and focus at the household uh, uh, level. Um, so I think there's, you know, multiple aspects to that, that, that recognising the uh, radical action to get your own house in order and disconnect from the system as much as possible that is destroying the planet is a, a signal, a market signal back in. It's much different to the sort of simplified forms of green consumerism of, you know, buying the green version of something uh, rather than the brown version. Uh, so when people disconnect more of their work, their consumption, their investment from those centralised systems, it definitely throws a very strong market signal uh, <laughs> that we want less of that in the same way that, you know, consuming things is a very strong market signal to let's produce more of that. It also acts as building the uh, working models for viral replication of uh, those solutions, uh, which are the necessary precursor to a lot of the structural larger changes anyway. Because when we look at the historical precedents for society trying to do something completely different structurally to what it's been doing, and there aren't small working models of that, then there's usually a big mess happens quickly. And so even something as technically apparently achievable as a rapid conversion of our electricity network to 100% renewable energy, leaving aside the, the fact that there's still all the transport energy uh, problem, uh, that those processes when society is doing something that it hasn't done before um, or, or having to undo things and redesign from first principles, there's hiccups and there's stuff-ups and there's collateral damage. So if we need to sort of rebuild these household and community economies from the bottom up, then we need robust, uh, diverse examples uh, of that. Now, of course, those systems are also then, if you like, lifeboats or fallback strategies uh, in terms of um, the failure at the larger level. So I think they achieve uh, a lot of things and they're complementary to the ideas of what would be appropriate policy changes. And so in the same way that I'm discussing uh, the land use planning policies that would simply, uh, you know, support things like retro suburbia. Instead of writing a book for the activists and the uh, policy makers, I thought it much more strategic to write a book uh, to help empower more people to actually do this because you don't need a majority of people making these sorts of changes to trigger uh, larger change. 
for example, um, the way home-based livelihoods have been a possibility uh, for 20 years. I've been waiting for, like, when is this, you know, uh, addiction to commuting to work and both addiction by employers and employees, um, you know, going to fracture. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's been people who are sort of testing and doing that. And then, of course, when the pandemic happened, they were actually in a really good position. Now a whole lot of people have actually got a taste of that, for better or worse. So it is really important, those uh, working uh examples that then can contribute to larger change and take advantage of uh, larger change. Well, thank you for uh, ending on a cautiously optimistic note there, David. I really appreciate that. Uh, Very quickly, if people want to find out more about you, if they've been enamoured by what you've said, uh, where can they go? Uh, well, to Holmgren Design website is all my essays and writings there. The stuff specifically about retro suburbia, a lot of it's on the retrosuburbia.com uh, website. There's uh, uh, readings and resources there, uh, stuff to back up the book. Uh, I know there's been a lot of discussion with degrowth and post-growth that um, it doesn't get a lot of mainstream media attention but nonetheless there is a, a significant groundswell and the fact that Definitely. a lot of people have heard of retro suburbia um despite it being a five-syllable word you know <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not doesn't come quite off the tip of the tongue as much as yeah. uh, perhaps permaculture does but it's it's good tidings so look david thank you so much for coming on um pgap it's been an utter pleasure good to be here Thank you. Whenever I come to see you, I always find you outside with your hands in the ground, getting down with anything that grows. And all I want to do is join you in that morning sunshine. I want to know, want to know how you grow all your vegetables. Cause we're going to grow a garden. We're going to grow a garden. We're going to grow a garden, darling. Well, I saved you some seeds from my pumpkins and peas And I can foresee we'll get them growing like weeds We could stay up real late and plant them by the moon And we're gonna make everyone jealous When they see what we've got growing on the trellis It'll be raining down in our very own food monsoon Cause we're gonna grow a garden We're gonna grow a garden We're gonna grow a garden Darling Said we're gonna
Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast. And yes, it is still true that better is better than bigger. We've just heard Grow a Garden from the entertaining and informative permaculture themed band Formidable Vegetable. I highly recommend checking out more of their material on their Bandcamp page. I'll provide a link in the podcast notes. Now, normally after an interview, I do the recapping, but we are a zany lot at PGAP and between you and me, we are just out of control. So I thought for this episode, I'd bring in a guest recapper. Mark Allen is founder of Town Planning Rebellion and Holistic Activism. Mark encourages people to take a holistic activism approach to emotive topics such as population so that the issue becomes less divisive and leads to more nuanced conversation and ultimately more progressive policy making. As a sustainable planner, he has pointed out in his previous writings that under the current economic paradigm, there is a direct correlation between population growth and development here in Australia and that by acknowledging that we can work towards a more proactive and less development-driven approach to population policy that is more holistic and ultimately more inclusive. Mark, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me here. Are you coping with the zaniness? I am just about coping. Yes. (laughs) I've had a couple of cups of tea, so I'm doing well. (laughs) Now, um, holistic activism and town planning rebellion have come up in the notes uh, several times throughout the series, so it's good to actually hear your voice um, rather than just linking to your excellent work. And given that you are a sustainable town planning expert i thought you were in a much better position to recap on david holmgren's interview than i am well thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that i appreciate it so my first question to you mark is town planning rebellion is a group that is focused on bringing a post-growth perspective to town planning and you advocate strongly for retro suburbia in the work that you do how do you go about that Well, we're a small group and we are all about spreading the word and emphasising the fact that the main focus of sustainable development is actually not to develop at all. Well, at least um, when I say not develop at all, I mean not develop in the way our society frames it um, under the current paradigm. As David pointed out, um, a society whose main focus is on maintaining, improving, retrofitting and repurposing our existing built stock and their gardens will, of course, generate a lot of employment. Um, so it's it's about changing our perspective of what work and employment and development is as much as anything else. And that's why one of the reasons why we're here. Um, we're also an organization, um, of course, that advocates for a transition to a steady state or post-growth society that isn't measured by GDP, because what we're calling for just will not happen under the current system. We, we're under a Um, a system that's addicted to pouring concrete, building ever more. And in order to change that paradigm, we actually have to have systemic change as well. Also, one of our roles is to bring retro suburbia into forms of uh, participatory democracy, such as citizens' assemblies and people's assemblies. Uh, These are the things that Extinction Rebellion are calling for as part of their third demand. 
Um, so Wirral acts act as a bit of a conduit between uh, permaculture-based movements and maybe groups like Extinction Rebellion because we are all about creating a movement of movements, finding areas of intersection where narratives, really important narratives, including especially what David's talking about, can maybe get into areas and be discussed in areas where they might not otherwise have got into. So we're there to act as a kind of a, a way of bringing that information and that knowledge into as many different spheres as possible so that it becomes normalized. Um, and we're also about working with environment movements in general because much of what environmental movements and environmental campaigning is about is about reacting to bad planning decisions. Um, it's not so much challenging the paradigm that creates those bad decisions happening. They, they don't really have the time and the energy a lot of the time. They're just constantly battling fighting to deal and overcome um, awful, awful um, proposals. Uh, sometimes they'll have the occasional minor victory. Sometimes they will win some concessions. Occasionally there'll be a major victory, but for the most part, uh, environmental groups um, are fighting a losing battle because the dominant paradigm that we're living in now is to keep developing, keep pouring concrete. So what we're about, too, is we're about reaching out to these environmental groups and saying, you know, keep doing, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you very much for that summary, Mark. Um, I did briefly touch on the naughty P word with David Holmgren, and that's not permaculture, that's population. Now, we have done um, seminars and workshops in the past where we touch on population, so I trust you to talk on this very sensitive issue I'll try not to make Darth Vader sounds as he, as he talk about it. <laughs> well, it, it, it is an important issue to talk about, and evading it doesn't make this issue go away. And, and it is, as David said, it is a very nuanced issue. Um, and it, but it is important, if you're going to talk about planning and development and land use planning, to avoid the population issue is disingenuous. So the important thing is to ensure that we do take a nuanced approach and that we frame it in the right way. Under the current paradigm, we live in a world that entrenches structural poverty, third world debt and extractive industries. And these drain wealth from countries um, in so-called developing countries, keeping them in a state of perpetual poverty. And then we dangle a carrot on a stick and invite a very small number of people from these countries into our society as a means of propping up our GDP growth-based economy, which, of course, in Australia is mostly about channeling money into the coffers of developers, real estate and supermarket chains. And, and David you know, pointed this out in his discussion. So under neoliberalism, um, any migration policy, no matter how substantial it seems, always shuts out far more people than it can ever let in while condemning the rest of the world to ongoing exploitation. So Tampang Rebellion makes a strong stand on this issue. Any post-growth society must turn all of this on its head, with the underlying approach being about working with and collaborating with countries across the world, uh, taking a mutual aid approach so that we can create resilient, regenerative communities in collaboration. And of course, these communities would be empowered and empowered people get to choose the number of children that they want. That should be a given. Uh, we need empowered people, uh, empowered women especially. And so access to healthcare and family planning would be integral to that process because this is what people on the ground want. Um, 
And we in Australia must transition away from a society that is constantly pouring concrete to one that is about primarily maintaining, retrofitting and repurposing existing housing stock and developing regenerative farming-based communities. And of course, those people who are not refugees who come to Australia would come here knowing that this is the new paradigm. So in a post-growth society, migrants would probably largely come here because that they feel that they can be a better steward of the planet here, here in Australia. And David touched on this in his interview. Um, there is a lot of work to be done in regenerating and properly managing vast tracts of the Australian landscape. But obviously, of course, in partnership with the First Nation uh, custodians of these lands. Um, and with the climate rapidly changing and water being a growing problem, I'm not sure how many permanent residents rural Australia can sustain. But what is critical is that we create a society where farmers are paid to switch to regenerative forms of agriculture and in doing so uh, massively increase tree cover on their land and, and other other approaches you know so we could have for example armies of volunteers coming out from the cities to to help them to do that in the autumn and spring months you know i'd love to spend a couple of months of the year camping out bush planting trees before returning to my retro suburbia life but in terms of reducing our need to build new housing um, our cities can also accommodate a fair amount of population growth too if we have a model of retrofitting and repurposing, we can fit um, more people in, many more people in without lifting a brick as there are hundreds of thousands of empty houses and flats across our urban conurbations and hundreds of thousands more empty bedrooms. So if we take a proactive approach to the population issue and realise that overpopulation, irrespective of whether you or I think it is an issue or not, is actually a symptom of a deeper societal issue, uh, that we can tackle in a post-growth society through proactive mutual aid, cooperation, decolonizing aid, empowering communities, coupled with a new approach to how we go about land use planning, then populations will stabilize across the board over time. There will still be some toing and froing between countries, but that is a good thing, of course, but it will not have a major impact in terms of forcing more concrete to be poured. Um, and in other parts of the world, it would be good to encourage those people who do want to move uh, to move to those areas where there has been depopulation and where buildings are going empty. There are entire villages in Italy, for example, um, that are going empty that could benefit potentially, I don't know, from um, people going in and retrofitting and restoring and recreating communities there. In China, there are entire ghost cities that are empty, uh, but that's less to do with depopulation and more to do with bad economics. So there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of un underutilized existing buildings and infrastructure across the world that um, ideally we would be looking at uh, re repurposing and better utilizing as opposed to using population as a means of forcing more development, more concrete, more encroachments onto land. So it's about the way we approach the movement of people in a way that puts stewardship of the planet ahead of everything else and proactively about how we work on the ground with communities so that people have the same access to healthcare and family planning that we take for granted in the West. Um, and that can be achieved in a post-growth society through um, mutual aid and, um, and, a, and a different approach in general to, to the one now, which is all about GDP 
Yes, so that's in a bit of a nutshell where we're at with the population issue. Well, I'm glad like us that Town Planning Rebellion also doesn't like the GDP. (laughs) How can people learn more about Town Planning Rebellion? Yeah, well, Town Planning Rebellion is absolutely a systemic change organisation. So we are about advocating for a a post-growth, steady-state society because we we realise that that we cannot... We cannot get to this shift in paradigm around development without systemic change. Uh, we're a small group um, at this stage, and I'm not sure how large we will grow, but that doesn't matter too much because what matters is that the broader movement grows. So we need all hands on deck right now. Um, there is a climate and ecological emergency, and the issue of land use planning is really, uh, really underplayed and really not getting the... Um, not really getting the um, movement and acceleration that it really needs. So if if you connect to, you know, the urgent need to, 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 to follow uh, what David was talking about, to, to pursue the retro suburbia model, pursue regenerative farming, uh, rewilding in accordance with First Nations people, um, join a group it doesn't have to be town planning rebellion or or start your own group it it doesn't matter if it if it doesn't grow very much because what matters is that we build a movement of movements and as long as we all connect and intersect and find ways of working together it doesn't matter but what matters is that we we are all looking to find the common ground so if you um, go onto the town planning rebellion websites and check out our 10 issues of discussion um, which and our website is holisticactivismalloneword.net check us out um, if you're interested in what we're saying please reach out and make contact with me my details will be on the link um, we are you know currently working towards being involved in citizens assemblies and in those citizens assemblies we'll be bringing a lot of what David talks about into those spheres of communication. We're, we're communicating with environment groups. Um, you could start your own branch of Town Planning Rebellion. You could join ours. You could start a completely different organization, but share some of our ideas and then connect with us there. But what, what matters is that we get people working in the area that they're best suited to in order to tackle this climate and ecological emergency in a way that is gives you joy and pleasure and in a way that um, is reaching out and connecting so that we can grow this movement of movements together because there's no time to lose um exciting times scary times and exciting times yes thank you thank you so much for sharing mark you had so many wise things and wise words to share there Um, plus it gave me a break from listening to my own voice Um, i'm feeling in this podcast i'm very getting very sick of my own voice so uh for that alone thank you for coming on well thank you for having me and um it's great to share a space with david here and um yeah thank you Thank you. So what do you think of all the above? Uh, you can contact us on any time uh, on our website to let us know what you think. Uh, do you like the podcast or indeed do you hate it? Either way, you can leave a review anytime on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Don't be shy. Um, until next time, until next time. <laughs>